0: you're listening to the scaling culture podcast where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences building incredible workplace cultures our guest today is laura daniels head of talent and chief learning officer at wellstar health systems and associate faculty for columbia university's human capital program laura's background is connected to well-recognized establishments at kaiser permanente Her leadership efforts were globally recognized in Training Magazine, where she was selected as a top five global emerging leader for the creation of KP Leadership University. At Pacific Gas and Electric Company, she led transformational leadership development, which resulted in the organization ranking number 14 in Training Magazine's premier list of top global training organizations. Also, Laura has a passion for helping communities thrive and currently serves as a board member of JDC, a leading global humanitarian organization working in over 70 countries. In this episode of Scaling Culture, Ron and Laura discuss how to apply a design thinking mindset to strengthen the organizational culture, how VR and other learning and development innovations can enhance the employee's experience, and her company Wellstar Health's pandemic experience and what the future of HR looks like there. As a side note, please accept our apologies on audio quality this episode, but we promise the content is still great if you can persevere through some moments during the interview where the audio quality is a little shoddy.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Skin Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lovett, and today with me, I've got Laura Daniels. Laura, welcome.
2: Thank you. Good morning, Ron. Happy Friday.
1: Happy Friday. It is. Uh, I'm, I'm, are you looking forward to the weekend? I am.
2: <laughs> I have to say, I'm ready. We've been in a pandemic in healthcare for a year. Those weekends uh, really take advantage of.
1: All weekends are good right now. That's right. That's yeah. great. It's, it's interesting. I feel like the weekend people are like, you're right, more excited than ever to just have a weekend. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: yeah great. Um, so so I wanted to just start off and get a bit of a deeper introduction. Uh, today, you're with Wellstar Health System. Um, but talk to us a little more about your background quickly even though we've introduced you
2: yeah absolutely uh, so i've really spent the last 15 years i like to see is a really a change agent if you will in the, in the talent space so i've worked across the board and, and everything from employee experience to you know traditional talent management um, and actually started my career off on the talent acquisition side and so as i've really continued to build my career've taken a, a really keen interest in Um, kind of creating more human workplaces. And so um, I'm a PhD, MBA by background. And so I I love the science um, and really the evidence-based background of really creating people practices that are good for business and good for people as well. Mm -hmm. And,
1: And, And Laura, what was your kind of aha moment that this people thing was really important to you?
2: Yeah, so um, I I think I always had, you know, a deep passion, I think, around improving kind of the the workplace for people. Um, But I think when this really came to a crux, I would say it's probably about 2016, um, I was going through, you know, my PhD and trying to figure out, you know, topics for a dissertation, working in healthcare and in healthcare, we have some of the highest burnout rates of any industry and profession.
1: Because can... of the shift work or the, or the top work, or both.
2: Well, a few things. So, um, first off, uh, it, it, the the roles are just very intense. When you're in an ICU nurse and you're dealing with another human being that's critically ill, um, that's you don't think about like the, the neurological and emotional um, impacts that that has of dealing with high trauma. Um, uh, situations where your brain is essentially in a fight or flight response because you're dealing with emergency situations. And so over time, if you look at providers or nurses, for example, um, They've exceedingly high burnout rates. And so resiliency has been a huge focus within healthcare for some time. Um, but things like the pandemic have only only expedited that where we've got, you know, acute care and ICU nurses that have been working seven days a week for the last year.
1: Wow. Uh, and so I want to come back to that topic because I think that's very interesting. And, and your industry is at the forefront of figuring that out. Others are being hit with it. They don't even know. It's it's probably not as uh, they don't see it in a day-to-day um and, and don't have the extremes to drive, you know, to, to expose how important that is. But what you said originally when you start off, are you talking about when you talk about humanity and HR, it seems like there's this big push towards, you know, HR used to be policy performance driven. Yeah. Um, and now it's holistic. Now it's the whole individual. Is that correct? Is that what you were referring to, Laura?
2: Yeah, very fair. You know, when I really step back, I really look at HR and quite frankly, I'm not sure the old HR even needs to exist anymore. And right. I think that the future of HR, you know, as our, our mindsets have shifted and consumer preferences have changed changed and um, out, out in the core business world, and, employees' mindsets and and preferences and perceptions have completely changed. And so we now know that there is tremendous value in treating your employees and and not even value, it's critical table stakes that you treat your internal employees the same way and you show up at the same way from a brand perspective that you do externally in that alignment of experience. And so as you think about kind of this new HR or the consumerization of HR, Um, they really need to look and feel like marketing departments. And so marketing departments have been really good for many years at understanding who are our consumers, how do we really kind of break those consumers out into key groups because they have different needs and desires and wants, and how do we really clearly meet each consumer's needs? And I think that HR, you know, in my dream world, HR and marketing would almost really come together because they've really got one purpose, Um, which is really ensuring that we've got the right messaging and experiences, both for consumers and folks on the inside. I almost think of employees as like a magnifying glass of your consumer experience.
1: Right. And so, but are you saying it's, it's this pivot to treating employees like customers and making sure that we're doing what's right for them or? So
2: I think when you look historically um, and you you kind of look at what an employment deal is or what it might have been many years ago, many years ago the deal, if you will, was that we were going to go work for an employer who really cared about our career long-term, was going to help us to grow and develop our career. Um, Most of our, our social needs around safety and security, love and belonging, they were all getting met at home. People worked a lot less And so over the years, that deal, employment deal, if you will, has dramatically changed. And now when you look at generations like myself as a millennial, we're spending the majority of our lives working. And so I always think about it as almost Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you think of all those kind of core social needs, as workplaces have demanded more of us and said, hey, I expect you to respond if you get an urgent email at night. Um, I expect you to put your heart and soul into this role and perform at a specific level, Um, that as employers have really demanded more, employees are now coming back and saying, hey, we're really getting the short end of this deal. And employers, if we're gonna work um, significantly more hours than we used to, if, if you're not gonna take care of us and our families with those commitments of lifelong work and pensions and things like that, we also want a new deal and and by the way we expect you now that our lives are um have a significant more focus on work we expect you organizations to care about not just us but our families holistically we expect you to care about all those needs in maslow's hierarchy whether that's love and connection and belonging you hear these words in the workplace we never would have heard these words 30 years ago um or even things like financial wellness or in the pandemic you know, safety and security at a, the most basic level, people wanted, you know, felt very uncomfortable when employers recently have started trying to bring people back to work.
1: got it, yeah. it, it seems critically important. It was funny as you were talking, because I, I think at 10,000 feet, this is critical. And I was like, I wonder if some millennials are saying this in the interview, which I would be terrified to receive.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's shifting very quickly. I'll yes. tell you, you know, millennials are demanding radical flexibility. Right? even look at, healthcare where we have very traditional roles of, you know, you work four tens or, you know, you work, you know, three 12s and the pandemic, you know, it, it really catapulted us, catapulted, us, catapulted us into the future of work. And our nurses said, look, no, actually, I'm not willing to do that. This is the exact schedule I'm willing to work. And this is the exact flexibility I need because my kids have, you know, virtual school, for example. And most of your nursing staff is female. Um, And so we were forced to really change our practices to really align to that kind of radical flexibility that employees are demanding, and they are open in their interview process about what they want.
1: You you're totally right. The pandemic, you know, really fast-tracked that 10X as far as, oh, you need to accommodate the family, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that wasn't really, it popped up, you know, once in a blue moon, maybe before it was more of an annoyance. It was more the family needed to accommodate work. That shift.
2: It's shifting dramatically. And, you know, I was just reading, there was really some really great Gartner research that was talking about about what's happening to high performers in this environment. Um, And it basically talked about, you know, a 20 plus engagement point increase when high performers felt like employers really cared about their personal lives, their family and their community beyond just themselves as a worker. So it it really has big impacts when you talk about getting top talent.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's something we need to be thinking about now and in the future and and really leaning into that entire concept if you're going to be a winning employer. So, yeah, that's great. Um, I want to talk about design thinking Mm -hmm. and using that approach to employee experience. But before we start, can you explain your version, your understanding of design thinking? Some people probably, I only learned that this was a few years back.
2: Yeah, so I think what design thinking really at its core, um, it really comes back to putting our users in the very forefront. And a lot of times when we solve problems, we go in and we start with you know our processes and our system. And we really need to start with that empathy and compassion for that end user. And so we're not designing hr policies and processes anymore and you know we're, we're designing experiences and right. so we really need to be able to step into the shoes of the people we're designing for um, as i mentioned you know when you think about hr and the key stakeholders you know what what a you know nurse that's working with COVID patients needs over the next year is dramatically different than a remote it worker um, in terms of what they want in their experience and so The criticality of design thinking is, one, making sure we're really understanding at a deep level, not just what they need, how they need it, how they want to feel when they experience it, and then building backwards into our processes um, so that we're not leading with, you know, this is an organizational perspective or mindset, which I think, you know, HR has been really challenged with, employee experience, um, quite frankly, I think, because they have the wrong mindsets. You, you're, we're taking a bunch of compliance and, you know, um, rule following folks and asking them to, to flip the script and be creative and c- customer focused. And these are just not skills you have within HR. And so I think that's why you're seeing so many folks from other functions, whether it be from marketing or experience from finance, getting into HR, as you see, all these shifts um, in terms of the type of the work, uh, the type of work.
1: And, and it's interesting, you know, I, I I love the design thinking process. And, and yes, it's it's you know, from my perspective, it's, it's function does A meet B meet C or one step two you know, go or three to four to five. And how do you feel to your point? How, like, are you excited or frustrated? If you're frustrated that mm-hmm. you failed in design thinking, you're excited and it was seamless. You won, but. The other outcome that I that I wouldn't have known, and they, they didn't talk about this when I took the course at Harvard Extension School, was yeah. it actually helps with the change management process. Because yes. the first time you are working with those individuals versus having them fit into your new policies or process, you're working with them. Hey, how did you like that, Lord? Did this work? Did that function properly? Like it is really... Trying to be compassionate, empathetic, understanding of the other side, not the other side, but the individuals involved, you know, on those functions and how do they feel about that? Is that correct?
2: Absolutely. And you hit on a great point, you know, change management has completely changed. <laughs> so while people are still using these old models around change and these Cotter models and the 7S models and um, ProSci, quite frankly, Um, in my opinion, they're completely outdated because change is no longer this still kind of linear process. And, you know, where we used to spend so much time on the comms and the training, quite frankly, the greater focus of leading change today, it's more around engagement in the whole design process. And so that's the benefit to your point of design thinking is that why are we even attempting to start to design a process without the end stakeholder sitting with us, uh, having a voice in that? And, you know, I think of it, just like the organizations that are really great with culture and those that aren't. Those that are really phenomenal in terms of building and sustaining culture, they're ones where they say, look, we all own this. We're all creating the culture um, and we're all responsible for our impact on the culture. And I think it's the same thing when you look at any people practices in the organization. I think the worst thing is that it can come out of HR um, and that it's not truly owned by the operators, by the business, by the people, um, so that HR is really playing more of a facilitative role um, to really guide that kind of innovation and design process much more than they are, you know, bringing just their just their expertise and background.
1: Right. right. And, and I'm not sure how far along the process uh, your organization is, but is there a a, a a quick story or example of, here's a process we had, then we applied design thinking, here's what it looked like afterwards.
2: Yeah, I'll give you a great example. So um, healthcare in the pandemic, right? We have, we are onboarding a, insane amount of nurses, right? What people don't realize is they talk so much about beds and vents and availability. The real issue in healthcare is staffing. Um, when you talk about Georgia, for example, we're the, the hardest state in the country to find nurses for and you're competing in a very competitive market. And so we, we are onboarding probably 300 nurses per week. That's a significant amount of nurses. And so, you know, you look at all the onboarding and kind of the, the pre-boarding processes, for example, and um, I'll tell you, they were a nightmare um, when I came into the organization and walked through the steps of a new process and um, that kind of feeling. This is your first impression of an experience in an organization. And, you know, going through, you know, a background check and having, you know, an administrative coordinator checking and making sure you are who you really say you are is not quite the warm welcome that you really want. And so it's cold not-
1: administrative heavy, right? That's what it was
2: all administration and you know you're dealing with an industry you know similar to finance and healthcare where you know it's not this super sexy tech environment where you can say we'll just talk about culture and make everything cool you have significant regulatory bodies and significant needs around things like compliance and safety which you'd want for your for your mds or for your nurses coming in and so it creates another barrier and challenge of how do you also create a really good experience? And so we heard things in the process like, look, I'm coming onto a COVID unit. I, I can't walk anywhere in the hospital because it's full of COVID patients. I have no idea where broader stuff is in the system. And so it really forced us to sit down and to understand one, who are the key groups we are onboarding? Because there's a big difference between the, the onboarding I'm doing for remote, as I mentioned, a remote finance worker or you know a, a remo- remote person working in corporate versus onboarding a nurse that in two days is gonna be in a COVID pod with 30 COVID patients. The needs and the concerns, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy, are very different for somebody that is coming out of a corporate role to go in, inpatient into sure. a COVID unit. So um, we really brought in stakeholders in, did really intense focus groups of what would this process ideally look like? Um, and so for, thing, for people like nurses, they had really different needs we didn't understand. Um, so for example, we're in the process of creating virtual reality tours of our hospitals and of our systems so that they understand Well, things may be shut and there may be security clearances in terms of where where folks can go with COVID. We wanna make sure they can feel that experience of what a hospital is like, not in a pandemic. Um, And, you know, when you look at the experience of the the finance worker, for example, we wanted to really increase, you know, flexibility in terms of how they did their onboarding, many more different modalities to choose from, adding an onboarding concierge, embedding a lot more technology to make the experience a lot more personalized. Um, But I think all of that only happens by sitting down with the end users and mapping out each part of the process and really recognizing that that design needs to be really different for different groups Mm -hmm. uh, because the types of employees you're bringing on are very very different and i think organizations as we get into the future of work and we know remote work is here to stay we know that employees are going to demand that radical flexibility need to be really thoughtful in how they're designing experiences because just doing stuff over um, remotely over zoom or over teams and all these channels um, it's really hard to build culture and so if culture has to do with what we're experiencing, other immersive technologies, I think like virtual reality will play a much larger role in helping people to actually feel and experience an organization, even if they're not physically there in a much better way than tools like Zoom.
1: Yeah, I love this. It's the first time I've ever heard anyone using VR, which I'm sure is just going to be very fast. Mm-hmm. And so, so so, is it used just for the nurses to, 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 so they um, you know, get an understanding of the work environment. Tell me more about the, the yeah. use of VR and this whole onboarding or what, what other processes you're here.
2: Yeah. So first off, uh, VR will completely change the, the entire world of work. And I think um, it's interesting to me that there's not even a, a, a bigger uh, conversation happening on VR. And there is a lot of conversation happening on it. Um, You know, I think that VR is our answer to a lot of things. And VR has historically been used in a lot of Um, kind of first responder type jobs so when you look at how the fbi or the cia or you know SWAT teams are how they're training and preparing for these life-threatening situations they've been using vr for years When you look at, you know, NFL and sports players, you know, they've really changed how they practice. They use VR hooked up to haptics to understand not only how they're doing and and, and how they're performing through VR when they're training, um, but also where are their stress levels? What are their cortisone levels? And so it gives us some insights to ourselves and right now it's really just been used in kind of the highest use cases um, doctors and nurses if you look at a lot of st- uh, cutting edge um, you know medical schools and stuff like that they've been using them for sur- with surgeons and things like that for years because you know we 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 know that you know didactic and you know traditional learning methods are just not effective you know you've heard people talking for years about you know the 70 2010, 20, 20 years ago now it's you know they've changed the figures and You know, we know that no one's learning through just just reading something or just having a mentor. We know that experience is the best way to learn because that's how children learn from the time they're really little. They watch what people are doing and they follow. And, you know, still our school systems, academic systems, um, they have not made the change. And when you think of, um, you know, especially in a remote world, now we're not only trying to teach somebody, somebody something but we have this huge rise of the experience movement, and we need to create experiences um, because culture can't just can't be portrayed in a two-way you know simple mechanism and so I think VR is really starting to take off Um, there's a gentleman named Matt Burns who who hosts the first ever kind of virtual reality conference actually Um, and the whole culture conference is actually done in virtual reality it's a global conference and I think as this continues to move further along, the uses are just um, unparalleled. From, you know, a we- you could have a welcome experience with senior leaders, welcoming that new person to your organization, you know, sh- virtually shaking hands, if you will, with the-, the heads of diversity, equity, and inclusion to show the criticality. Um, and-, and it'll just be a whole new world. But when you even think about it, there's other uses. Um, we think about burnout levels of, you know, high stress roles. Um, they've been using it to try to prevent PTSD um, in the military, actually, for quite some time. Because you're able to test, you know, biological factors and see how is somebody's body responding to different levels of stress. So you can slowly build up resiliency and really simulate what a work environment's going to be. You know, it's almost archaic when you think of how we've been selecting people for the job for jobs, looking at a paper of what they said were their big accomplishments and then trying to understand how that's going to translate to them actually doing the job Um, and so when you see companies that are leading an employee experience, I think of, you know, for example, Deloitte. um, They've moved a lot of their um, interview processes essentially to AI and that it's it's a robot looking for different things as they're answering interview questions. And so I think the future for things like VR and AI, um, quite frankly, will change very rapidly. I mean, even if you step back away from just jobs in this, you know, in this country and you think of you know, what happened with the future of work, Mackenzie um, just came out with a great study and it's basically saying about 100 million or about one in 16 people globally is gonna have to find um, and basically transition jobs before 2030. Well, how can we possibly upskill and retrain you know, one in 16 workers globally in a very, really fast way? Well, I'll tell you how you can do that with a hundred-dollar VR set, where you can put it on and teach people that have very little education, that can't read and write in their language. You can show them exactly how to do a new new job, whether that's as a hearing aid tech um, or a warehouse worker or something like that. So, so companies like Walmart and. Big companies have been using this for quite some time. They've learned, hey, we can train seasonal workers for this cheaper, faster, and better, quite frankly. And I have
1: no idea where the technology, you know, cost balance is right now. Because it sounds like, you know, when I hear you say that, you say you just put this $100 thing on, but I'm like, well, who wrote the program? Like how, you know, it sounds complex to me. Um, Or am I overthinking? Is it like, no, there's a kid in their basement that does that. It's no problem, you know?
2: Yeah. So I think to um, to your point, right now, the actual d- development of dollars of designing experiences is still really intensive and expensive. Right, and right. so what's happening right now is you're seeing a huge shift of folks getting into this that probably weren't interested and didn't think this was going to be their career. Uh, but you talk about a career that's going to absolutely explode. It's the design of virtual reality learning or experiences. And so... To your point, because there were so few people in the market who actually did this, one, they could command whatever kind of compensation they wanted. And so they really only focused on the the organizations that could pay top dollar, like the NFL wanting to train folks or like med schools who had an urgent critical need. And so as more people enter the market, which is what's happening right now, costs are starting to get down, there, um, there's starting to be a lot more opportunities where people can learn how to build it internally. So some companies are starting to build VR internally. Um, but it's, a, it's, I think, a slower adoption process. Um, but to your point, because the pandemic, one, I think accelerated so quickly um, that p- companies are realizing they've got to accelerate their automation, and they
1: are it's incredible you know i i think of our real estate business and how we can you know use mm-hmm. you know I, I, you know right now for instance one of our challenges is if there was a water issue having our our building ambassadors for our company beta living that are living like superintendents you know we went from well let's put a big pink piece of tape on the water valve for, we could probably do this on VR, you know, wouldn't yeah. have even thought about that. We're certainly gonna look into it. That's, this is incredible. Um, I wanna go back to resiliency mm-hmm. because I'm curious from a design thinking or, or compassionate approach. If I'm a, a new nurse practitioner, I'm joining the organization. Uh, it seems like, you know, so the old version was heavy paperwork, a little bit cold. Then I get into a very tough burnout industry, as we talked about in the beginning, because of time and exposure to things that maybe I wasn't ready for and and not knowing the effects of that. The organization saying, look, let's have a design thinking approach when you walk in the door. And so I'm curious. um,
2: Yeah.
1: Plus, how, how do you get out in front of that now?
2: Yeah, Uh, so I think as we're thinking about designing employee experiences, I think there's a couple of filters we really need to use. Um, And so far, organizations really haven't used many filters, if you will, to kind of check and validate, look, are we doing the right things and why are we doing them? Um, And so I think a couple of things. First off, when we're designing employee experiences, we've got to get much more specific and targeted around who is the actual user group. Um, First and foremost. I think, secondly, we've really got to take into account kind of the holistic human needs. And so as we think about Maslow's hierarchy, for example, not only do we have to take into account things like self-actualization and that people want to reach their full potential, the growth, the learning in the organization, and engaging, you know, creative activities, um, but they have a needs around esteem, feeling accomplished, recognized. They have needs around, you know, belonging and love. You know, this is coming up so much in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space that people feel an intimate connection and that they can really be them, themselves. Um, and then in the pandemic, of course, we really saw um, more kind of traditional physiological or safety needs come up safety, security? Am I okay at the workplace? You know, am I, am I, um, is the food that I'm going to be eating? We used to put food out on all the counters. going to be okay. Um, and so I think, you know, if organizations can really use one, this kind of core human needs as a filter, but also of course those, or that organizational values and the desired culture of where they're going. Um, I think, you know, many organizations spend a lot of time talking about culture, but they don't have real alignment and clarity of stakeholders of where they're trying to go to um, and so i think if we can do these things we'll really make an impact in terms of employee experiences
1: yeah i love that you talked about groups at the beginning of that piece and you're, you're just saying again back to you know there's you might have the soft uh items the purpose value story mission mm-hmm. you know but then you get into more specific to that job uh, in, in onboarding which might cross over a little bit into training but it it certainly is is what you're saying is making sure that you have, from a design thinking standpoint, different onboarding practices for different groups. That's exactly
2: right, because the needs are dramatically different. When you're hiring somebody who is a late stage worker that's looking, you know, the final five years of the career, it's a very different experience than hiring a new grad. And so I think HR, um, really needs to spend a lot of time with marketing, as I said, to much better understand how do you segment your key populations and understand what's going to resonate with each of those groups, which you really only can do through um, design thinking and, and a very experienced focus creation um, of, of any processes that you're going to have in the organization.
1: What are some quick tips on grouping, you know, so is it as simple as, oh, it's, it's the frontline employees oh, these types of leaders. What are some of the tips that you've used to, to kind of group folks into these categories?
2: Yeah, so I would say as much as you can put yourself into the shoes of the actual human beings themselves, and less into you know tra- traditional roles. So instead of saying, "Hey, all nurses feel like this," you know, I think one is using data. So one, we've really got to understand our employees at much deeper levels. If you look on the marketing or consumer side, people understand not only the age brackets but what consumer preferences are, what's happening, and so I think there's. Um, a really critical role that HR plays from a data perspective to really be able to paint the picture of who are we employing? You know, what's their average socioeconomic status? What's their, um, you know, outside of work? You know, what organizations are they volunteering with? And so you're really seeing organizations have a better pulse on people both when they're at work, but also outside of work because part of designing these experiences is to be able to really kind of capture, I I always always call it, you know, harmonious passion. And that if you can figure out what's really important to me, for example, I have a huge passion around nonprofits and find a way to start to tailor and market my experience, not only to the work, but broader aspects I care about in my life, um, you're gonna, we're gonna be much more successful. And so, you know, it's funny because somebody was asking me as, you know, dollars get stretched in this kind of post-pandemic environment, you know, is, is business process reengineering from the 80s going to make a comeback? Um, and I thought, you know, I actually, you know, business process reengineering was horrible. It, it it resulted in many jobs being gone, redoing processes to make them more efficient, if you will. And I actually think we're at a place where we do need business process reengineering across the whole globe, but we need. Human-centered process re-engineering. Mm-hmm. And so all these processes that were designed to be efficient, we need to redesign them to really be human-centric.
1: I love that. Yeah, that's great. Um I we had a guest on a few weeks back, and um, and she was talking about success path versus career path, and that just hit home for me. You know, I think you were just talking about some of those things where you know someone's success path maybe it's you know the old career path i'm to start here and then i'm a senior vp and into this that that's dead uh you know now it, it is about success path what is success at work look like for you and, and maybe it's as simple as i want to be involved in this aspect uh, of of the company or i want to move to i know there's an office in this location i'd like to move there because that's success to me and my family what yeah. do you think about that
2: so you want to do an interesting stat. More? people spend more time planning one summer vacation than they do their entire year of their career. Okay. Mm -hmm. So think about, uh, I always use this example, because when you think about somebody say they're going to go to Disneyland with their family, or they want to go trekking to, you know, uh, somewhere in Peru, Machu Picchu, let's say,
1: Great.
2: What what do you do when you get ready for a trip? Or what do you do when you get ready for a trip or a vacation? What kinds of things are you thinking about?
1: Well, my wife and I would have very different answers to this. I don't think a whole lot. I'm just like, I just need to know we're <laughs> hiding there. And, and then we'll find a place to stay that is not what she thinks about it. <laughs> time to check in. So, so we would have very different yeah. answers.
2: But you may think at a high level to say, hey, these are the places I want to go. I know yeah. I want to hike Machu Picchu. I want to do the Inca Trail. Sure. You know, I'd like to get some great food. Maybe you you know, chat with some people who've been there before. Oh, hey, you know, my buddy went to Peru a couple years ago. I'm going to find out what did he really like? What were the good off the beaten path places to go? Um, And so there's some level of thoughtfulness we have to say, this is where I want to go and why, whether I'm a nature lover, it's that I want to take my kids to rides. You know, here's the kind of big picture things I want to do when I'm there. I'll probably talk to somebody about, you know, what happened when they were trying, when they were going there, when they were doing it. And when you think about spending you know, a week on a vacation or two weeks on a vacation versus your entire year at work, I think there are very little people who understand, here's where I wanna go, here's where I wanna be in one year from today in my career, here's all the activities I wanna do along the way or that are critical to do if I really wanna have this experience. And then you think about others who've been there and done that, whether that's a mentor or a coach, I'm gonna talk to other people who've gotten there. And so I think to your point, that skill set is totally missing and employees are still saying, you know, I'm working really hard and I want to go to the next level or, uh, but organizations are getting flatter. And so I always, you know, constantly talking about my leaders and my teams about the need for you to be constantly about evaluating kind of what's my sweet spot in a world where the types of work are changing dramatically. We know that, you know, knowledge and skilled worker roles are exploding. Um, We also know that, you know, mid-level and lower paid jobs are really, really changing dramatically. And so when you think of that 100 million people that's going to need to be reskilled, one in 16 workers, um, you know, they're really going to have to go through some discovery to understand what I would call is kind of a sweet spot. Um, And if you think of kind of a Venn diagram, I think of, look, people have all kinds of capabilities and and kind of uh, skills that they're really good at they've all kinds of aspirations right which is wonderful and a lot of times people focus on just their aspirations and what they're good at and they miss the third bucket which is what's actually available in the job market because yes. the career sweet spot is kind of like w- where you find the the similarity across all three of those and especially with the world of work changing and the types of jobs that are changing you know could somebody that was an oil field tech now go be a wind turbine technician with the rise of the green economy you know could somebody who you know um, was another sort of uh, you know uh, or a retail worker when those jobs are eliminated because there's self-checkout stands which increased during COVID could they be reskilled as a warehouse worker with rising e-commerce so um, we've got to start teaching people and help people to understand how they find that sweet spot and basically recreate their career every couple years essentially
1: yeah Yeah, absolutely that's great Laura we've talked about some some (laughs) incredible topics, this was very insightful and a great learning experience for me. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you thought would be uh, helpful to our listeners?
2: You know, I think we really covered it. I think the the one last thing I'd say is just, I think that, you know, this is our moment for people that are working in the people function and the HR function to really dramatically change how we're showing up. And so um, I'm just excited to see the future and really a new face and look and feel of folks that are working within HR.
1: Great. Laura, thanks for being our guest today. Uh, thanks for dropping in on the podcast. It's been uh, been a great conversation and great to get to know you. Excellent,
0: Ron, it's been a
2: pleasure. Thanks so much for, for having me on today.
0: For more information about Laura Daniels, please connect with her on LinkedIn. And for more information about the Scaling Culture podcast or our upcoming book or masterclass Scaling Culture, Go to connollyowens.com. And if you're enjoying the Scaling Culture podcast, please subscribe and share. We'll be back next week with another incredible guest.